Hello and welcome into the KE Report. Shad and Corey here today talking with Nick Hodge, co-owner of Digest Publishing and editor of Foundational Profits and Hodge Family Office. And Nick, it's always great getting you on the show. About once a month is our rhythm here, just to talk about the resource sector, the general macro market economics, uh, what's going on out there that's moving the needle. And we've had a number of discussions just over the last few months where we've been looking at the changing dynamics under the surface of the economic picture. If you think back to this time last year, most people were expecting that by this time this year, we'd be seeing the signs of an economic contraction, of a slowdown. But we've had a lot of economic data that's come in better than expected. And I won't steal your thunder on this, but let's dive into that idea, Nick, that maybe the double whammy recession has had a, a pivot of its own, and it's possible that the economy is picking up. How are you looking at the big picture, Nick? Yeah, you'll remember, just for a quick recap, and, and thanks for having me again, Shad and Corey, by the way. I think a one-month interval is a great cadence to get a, a broader picture without you know chasing the ball down the street every day or every week with a more common frequency. But on the macro picture, you know, the data was weak. I mean, last year, you know, uh, housing data was weak. That uh, sort of data coming from the consumer was weak. And even ISM manufacturing data had been in contraction territory for some time. And that's just the economic data. You know, some of the other indicators like the inverse yield curve and and stuff like that were, were pointing to a recession. And so um, that's how I was positioned. And, and, and that's how a lot of the market was thinking as well, right? Yes, stocks were going up, but the economy wasn't great. And so people... We're hoping for a rate cuts. And that's why, at least in my mind, one of the big reasons that stocks were going up and then pull it all the way forward to more recent times. And uh, in December, you know, Jerome came out and was talking about three rate cuts in, in 2024 and, and stocks sort of ended the year near all time highs. And then we were talking about a pivot party the last time we spoke in January. But then by the end of January, it, sort of the Federal Reserve had changed its tune and, and the data started changing as well. The Fed was saying, um, look, we're not going to have a pivot. We're not going to have a cut in the first half of the year. And that part I got right. I had been saying that for a while. You guys aren't going to get a cut in the first half because inflation remains sticky high. It's still, you know, three or three and a half percent, well above the Fed's two percent target. And Jerome Powell said as much in recent weeks when he's talking about not cutting now. Uh, but the other thing that's happened is that some of that economic data has started to turn around. The ISM data looks much better just in recent weeks. For what it's worth, I don't understand how, but consumer sentiment data has improved. You look at the, the non-farm payroll data that came out in early February, and that was a huge beat. That was 353,000 jobs versus the 185,000 jobs expected. And you know, if you put on your memory cap and, and think back over the past year, you had continuous downward revisions of non-farm non payrolls, something I probably talked about multiple months during this interview here you have a huge beat on the on the on the non-farm payrolls and that's a big input into the gdp number and so let's talk about gdp for a second you know that's the one thing i got wrong i got sticky high inflation right but the gdp number came out for q4 and it was 3.3% and you know if you put on your tinfoil hat you can talk about how that number is calculated and you know why some of that growth was driven by government spending and how that's unsustainable and and I can entertain those talks and I have some of those thoughts as well but at the end of the day it's that 3.3% number that gets put into all the algorithms and models and so you get the stocks going to all-time highs and you get stocks going up I guess for the right reasons is is why I'm starting to change my thesis and positioning right 
I'm not one to buy stocks just hoping for a rate cut, right? But when I see the Federal Reserve saying, we're not going to cut rates in the first half of the year, um, and stocks still go up on the back of decent GDP and strong employment data, I can start to, to change my mind. And that's what you have to do as an investor. Now, a couple of things, right? These tech stocks are having wild valuations and swings. I mean, you're getting Meta and Palantir up 20 and 30% in a day. I'm not chasing those stocks headlong, but I can expose myself to healthcare, for example, which if you look at the 11 sectors of the S&P for the past couple of weeks, it's right there at the top underneath communication services and information technology. So I don't have to chase those tech stocks and I can still get long at the market of the market is one point I wanted to make. And the other point I wanted to make is that I can understand that the market is not the economy. I can understand that I need to own stocks and I can understand that the reason that those stocks are going up uh, maybe aren't the reasons that I like and maybe add to the you know already significant problem of wealth inequality in the nation, given that you know some of that spending is is being driven by the government sort of for from future generations. And at the same time, I can say, okay, uh, I'm still going to own stocks. But I'm going to be wary and I'm, I'm going to be able to change my mind, sort of as I just laid out for you. So that's how I'm sort of thinking about the macro market and sort of the inputs and, and how, how stocks are trading. I really appreciate that breakdown, Nick, because, look, we hear all the time the, the concerns about the economy or people, as you said, diving into the jobs data, diving into the GDP number and poking holes in it, saying, well, it's not nearly as strong as they're trying to present or as the headline number is, and then trying to carry that over to the markets and saying the markets are wrong. People love to fight the markets. But fact of the matter is, look, the markets have moved higher. And to your point about some of these tech stocks continuing to run higher, a lot of people are also saying the, the breadth, which is more constrained to these tech stocks, that's not healthy for the markets. But we also heard that last year. So what could you say to these people that are trying to hate every data point, trying to hate every new high in the markets, but not understanding that, look, the markets do disconnect. And quite frankly, the markets have been outperforming. Yeah, I, I, I would say that you can own the things that aren't crowded trades and you can still be long of the market but not in things that are, you know, trading with crazy valuations. Last month, I mentioned insurance stocks. I mentioned defense stocks as uh, in terms of like, you know, military stocks. And, you know, those stocks continue to hit 52-week highs. You know, they're not talked about on Bloomberg and, and CNBC every day, but they're quality stocks that, that you can own. So that's the first thing I would say is you can get long without owning things that everybody else is long. And the other thing I would say is, Markets have changed in the past 10 years, for sure, with the advent of ETFs is one thing, with the growth of passive investing is, is another. But the third thing, and, and I think the most important for the retail investor, is the advent of zero commission trading and uh, smartphones, so you can be more plugged into the market. So you've heard me articulate time and again that I don't have to be all in or all out. I don't have to be bullish on everything or bearish on everything, right? Like I can take profits on uranium stocks, for example, and still be bullish. So the fact that we're plugged in every day, the fact that you can be nimble, I think is an advantage to the retail investor. It helps me, you know, be able to buy stocks and say that I don't have to be committed, right? Like 
you know, I can buy a healthcare stock or a healthcare ETF if I want. And that doesn't mean I have to own it for the duration of 2024 or to the end of the first or second quarter. I can own it for three days if I want, right? Like if the data starts to change. So um, I think that's something that people have to keep in mind is that uh, you're just one button away from a sale. And if you're always worried about some market crash, well, you know, I could sell my entire IRA and, and all my positions probably in in a day, right? Or, or, or two days with a couple clicks of a button. And so uh, I think I think those are the things that I think about answering your question. And the, the other thing I think is separating in your mind, right? Like I understand there's a homeless problem. I drive to my office to trade my portfolio and I drive by the homeless people on the corner, right? I think there's a difference again between the economy and again, which was showing negative data points in, in 2023. And, and that's sort of what I'm saying is, is some of these data points are starting to improve now. And then you have to be willing to uh, change your mind when the market is changing and the last thing I'd say is, you know, pointing back to, to Mr. Dines, a, a mentor of mine, and then someone whose letter I took over when he passed a couple of years ago is he had a bunch of aphorisms that he called Dinesisms. And and then one of the ones that he liked the best was don't think, look. So, you know, sometimes I just have to think back to that and, you know, not overanalyze and like you say, not dive into the numbers and then put on my tinfoil hat, even though I, I understand that, you know, there there is a they and, and there is manipulation at times, but don't think, look. Well, Nick, I think those are some great points you just made for investors. And it, it's about not overthinking it, but just looking at what's happening. It's about being able to adjust your thesis when the data changes. But it's also about being nimble. Like you say, you're only a button click away. You're not married to any trade. And you don't have to get into any sector and stay into it for decades. You could change it, like you say, in three days. Now, you did throw in a line that I want to follow up on there about the uranium sector. You could take profits in uranium stocks and still be long the sector. That's actually what I've done personally recently, Nick, is I've taken a, a little bit off the table because there's been some wild gains. But let's talk about the uranium sector. That's another sector that's been ripping higher for some time. I mean, you can look back to the 2020 lows in the pandemic when the whole market crashed and everything had a big run. But uranium has kept running. You know, it hit that big run in 2020 to 2021, cooled its jets a little bit in 2022. But then 2023, another big year. And it's looking like 2024, it's off to the races again. Is uranium the sector itself getting overheated? Does it have more room to run? How are you playing the uranium sector? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't believe it's overheated. I think that you're getting a healthy consolidation in the spot price uh, around $100 a pound. I think that that's a pretty healthy price for some, not enough new production to come online. And I think the catalysts continue to line up. So last month, we talked about demand with you all. I talked about France extending the life of their reactors. And I talked about small modular reactors. And I talked about um, new reactors coming online and how some of that wasn't factored into the demand picture. This this month, I think I'll talk about supply. Um, you had a couple of things happen in Kazakhstan, which is um, the largest producer of uranium in the world through you know the state-owned company, Kazatomprom. And, and the first thing is they missed production targets. They had warned last year that they uh, might miss 24 and, and 25 production. And, and uh, they had their public company meeting last week and, and announced guidance. And in fact, they are not going to meet their production for this year. So um, that was one reason you saw a reascension of the uranium stocks recently. And the other thing is that happened in Kazakhstan is you had a, a resignation of their government in the past couple of days. So it doesn't really foster confidence in you know, the world's largest supplier when one, they're announcing they're not going to meet their previously announced production guidance and two, their their government uh, resigns doesn't really scream stability to me. So um, that's one thing on the on the on the production side as opposed to the demand side. And then the other thing is generalist investors. So 
And you need those for bull runs to happen, for the overshoot to happen and the resource stocks that, that lots of people know can happen. And so the generalists uh, continue to be enamored with uranium and continue to come in. I was I was telling you this a couple of months ago that some generalist hedge funds I follow were were bullish on uranium. And just in the past week, there was a conference where Porter Collins, who's one of the gentlemen who was involved in the big short back in, in 2008, he was at a big generalist investment conference and was asked, you know, what's your highest conviction trade at the, at the moment? And his answer was the uranium trade, right? This, is, this isn't this is the VRIC, right? This isn't Beaver Creek. This is, you know, a Wall Street generalist investment conference, right? So to have someone on the stage to say that, you know, uranium is their highest conviction trade is, this says to me that, you know, generalists are still interested and are going to continue to be in, in, interested, right? Because that's like smart generalist money. Like it's still going to trickle all the way down to the to the Reddit subgroups, right? So I think there's still money to come into to uranium. I, I think that the supply demand picture remains intact. And yeah, Shad, you can sell positions and, and still be bullish. I've done that along the way. I've, I've repurchased energy fuels on the on the pullback in, in December, for example. And so, yeah, I think charts look healthy. And I think there's new entrance coming in, I guess, is the last thing I would say. And I, I pointed to this last month when we spoke is deals are getting done, like mergers have happened. You know, I saw a couple of new uranium stocks exhibiting at the, at the conferences in Vancouver in recent weeks. There's new names to look at. And so, yeah, I think you're, you're obviously a couple of innings into it, but there's still exciting times in the uranium space and there's still a lot of interest there. So to your point about new names in the uranium space, you're right. There are quite a few new names and some companies that have simply just switched their commodity of focus. Are you going down into some of these juniors? Do you see value and potential there? Well, yeah, there's some that haven't run. So these new, new entrants I've started to look at. I'm not going to remember all their names, or maybe I can. There was one with like a horse, Stallion Uranium. And then um, there was a, a Cosa Uranium. And I've looked at some of them. And, you know, some of them are, are, are recycled management teams and assets. And, and some of them are, are new with serious teams. So you sort of have to do your diligence. Some I've owned that haven't run yet, right? So, and I don't own either of those two for, for what it's worth. But I am doing diligence on them. But I've, I own some that haven't run, like Labrador Uranium, for example, which is now called Latitude Uranium. It, it didn't get that run that the rest of the sector had. And now it's part of an acquisition with Atha and, and another company. And, you know, Atha has one of the largest positions in the in the basin, in the Athabasca Basin. And once this merger gets digested, I expect that company to do well. Another one that I own that hasn't run is Kraken. So um, that's like a U.S.-based one with some former next-gen guys. That never got its run either. I expect these companies to do well in the next phase of the bull market, yes. Well, maybe just one more on uranium and the uranium stocks in particular. If you look at a lot of the charts, there's a lot of companies that had that big run from 2020, as alluded to earlier, into 2021. And they put in the high point in their charts back in 2021 when I think uranium was around 50, 60 bucks a pound. Now uranium's, like you say, consolidating around $100 a pound. And some of these stocks are actually lower than they were now, this is the same kind of pattern we've been seeing in a lot of commodities. You know, we saw the same thing in gold and silver, where they had higher metals prices, and yet the stocks didn't make it up as high. Is there a chance the uranium stocks still need to catch up with the move that's happened so fast in the spot price? Or are some of those stocks just warning that maybe there's going to be some kind of a meeting in the middle between the two? I think the uranium stocks have some catching up to do more so than the gold stocks do. For what it's worth, you know, I've seen this data and trading action over the past month. I've been a little bit less bullish on gold stocks in the in the in the shorter term. Still bullish on gold, but more bullish on uranium stocks. I think they 
um, have some catching up to do. Last time we talked, I, I did tell you about the, you know, matching up the URA ETF to the the, the spot price of uranium and how it was uh, keeping pace in, until recently. And so I agree with you. The uranium stocks do have some some catching up to do. And, and I think some of that generalist money is is one of the things that can get it there. So uh, that's a pretty short answer. I don't have really much to ex- expand on there, except that, you know, I think there's more upside in, in uranium stocks. Uh, well, I guess no, there is something else to say there, right? So uh, think about the paths forward, right? When you get separation between a commodity price and uh, the related uh, equity prices, right? Either the commodity price comes down to meet the stocks, uh, the stocks go up to meet the commodity price, uh, or they meet somewhere in the middle, right? So if you think about that in, in terms of gold and uranium, I mean, look at it. I don't believe the uranium commodity price can come down you know, much below 75. We talk about the marginal cost of, of production being there, right? And now you've got you know new contracts being um, exercised, assigned, et cetera. So you know, through that lens, I believe that you know the stocks have to come up to to match the commodity price. Whereas in gold, we'll see. You know, it, you know, maybe gold can can settle out at at eighteen hundred or, or two thousand, and and so in that respects, the, the the stocks don't have to come up as much to meet the commodity price. So that's how I look at things. And and for uranium specifically, I think that it's the equities that that have catching up to do. All right, let's move on to another commodity. Then that being copper. Look, we still hear a lot about copper. There's still a lot of people very encouraged about copper now being more pushed back to later this year. But circling back to some of the better economic data out of the U.S., that could help push copper higher if we do continue to see that. But also mixing in China. China's struggles. They can be a big consumer of something like copper. Nick, how are you balancing out the drivers economically for copper between the U.S. and China? Yeah, it still didn't want to get over $4. And so that's the level I've been watching for a while. But w- what I will say is that it drifted up towards there more than it wanted to do um, mostly for the past year. And so how am I thinking about copper? So I'm a long-term bull on copper. I was saying for a while that I thought we were going to get a recession in the first half of this year and that uh, I would then start positioning for um, copper on the backside of that. I think that's been pulled forward a bit. I think that the jobs number you just saw means that you don't get uh, negative growth in the first quarter. And so that means we can't get a recession in the first half. And so, I, you know, if I was going to start buying copper stocks in the second quarter, the I pull that forward to the, the middle of the first quarter. And I do look at start looking at some of the larger producers. So uh, a couple of things. Uh, a first on conviction is I, I don't have a lot of strong conviction in the near term that, you know, economic growth is going to explode to the upside. As I said earlier, I think it's government driven. So I'd want to see more organic economic growth in the U.S. to get more conviction in copper. But nonetheless, again, taking the the GDP and the jobs number as what it is, I do want to start positioning in some of these base commodities. And so one way I do that is is through country ETFs. You know, lots of uh, countries, as you know, produce a lot of copper, Peru, Argentina, uh, Chile, uh, Australia, for example. And so uh, if you can look at some of these country ETFs and what they hold, you'll discover that some of them hold large miners, like uh, some Australian country ETFs, for example, are 25% or more weighted to companies like BHP and Fortescue and Rio. And so you couple that with some of the economic policies that go on in those individual countries, and you can come up with a, a list of ways to get long of copper without having to um, buy copper directly or without having to buy a copper ETF directly. And so 
yes, starting to look more closely at copper here in the, in the first quarter. Um, and, I'm, and I'm looking to get exposure to it through some perhaps unconventional ways. Well, Nick, I think that's an interesting way to uh, look at the investing outlay, you know, to look at country ETFs, to look at some non-conventional ways. We've had a few other guests that came on and said that their copper exposure was through royalty companies instead of through individual stocks. But let's talk about individual stocks because there are people listening that probably either are positioned in copper stocks, maybe some juniors that haven't moved yet, or maybe they're in some producers that already have moved and wondering, should they double down? How are you looking at those two groups? the producers of the metal that have actually held up pretty well over the last couple of years, or the earlier stage juniors that are in exploration and development? Yeah, so I would be buying the the larger producers now, like actively buying them, starting to scale into them through those ETFs. Like I said, some of those would include the Southern Coppers of the world, the Rios, for example, Freeport, uh, the, the names that, that people know. Um, other names that are liquid that, that I look at um, and own from time to time have been Ivanhoe Mines is, is a good name to, to get long of copper. Um, you know, Philo's got a great discovery. That stock trades well and has a, ha, had a pullback recently. Don't own either of those right now, but um, those are good trading names to look at. And then while I'm not writing checks currently into, into speculations, I do have some long-term copper speculations that I've owned for you know, some time and that I believe will do well um, over the long term, right? When I, you know, think about speculations, I, I typically have a longer term time frame, And so I'm content just to sit on those shares, you know, in, in the copper space, what's exciting? Gladiator Metals is on to a, a, you know, a pretty good past producing project up in the Yukon there with their White Horse project has uh, been drilling some very good grades and, and has a lot of unassayed core that they're reassaying or assaying anew and 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 putting the the grades out on. I um, have pretty good deep pocketed support there, given that the project was consolidated over the past quarter century by um, a, a well known Yukon family called the Coins, who own a large drilling company. So um, that's a that's a that's a decent copper speculation. Um, I think I might have told you before about Hannon Metals, which I own, which has you know uh, multiple porphyry uh, early discoveries in uh, Peru and and just got their dia actually while we were in Vancouver uh, a couple of weeks ago got their permit and so uh, that's one with that, that'll likely have a a catalyst in the second half so I guess I should clarify that their dia is only on a portion of their project that they've joint ventured with Jogmec who is the the J- Japan oil gas and, and mineral arm and, and then they still have a huge project that they own uh, just for themselves that they haven't got their permit yet but that should be coming shortly and you know given that they were able to get it for their first project is a, is a good sign for the other permit that they're working on and so things start to start to happen in Peru I saw you guys were talking to Palomina I guess if you want a gold names the staying on Peru that's a that's a quality company run by Andrew Thompson who sold his last company, Soltoro, to Agnico Eagle. So when you talk about betting on people, um, you know, he's one who's done it before and he's one who has real money in the in his deal and um knows how to keep a structure intact through cycles and and through downturns and cycles so he can come out of the other side and um, have a win for all shareholders. And he's got a a pretty good stake in a company called Windshear that that just had an, an arbitration payout. So they've got cash in the bank to drill. They don't have to dilute and Anyway, that's a that's a decent company you could look at for for long term gold exposure in 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 South America, Peru specifically. So, uh, a couple of names there. Don't own Palomina for for what it's worth, but have in the past and then have participated in, in placements for that company. All right, Nick, great having you on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your updated outlook. I do very much appreciate how you are looking at the markets and not getting too stuck into any one or two themes. 
And hey, you're playing some of these uptrends too. That's what good investors do. Nick, as always, thanks for coming on the show. We'll chat again with you next month. I hope you have a great rest of your February. You as well. See you, Chad. See you, Corey.